Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. After skipping a month, the review show is back. This month's reviews include The Bad Guys, The North Man and Operation Mincemeat. I suspect there's at least one disagreement among that selection. Talking of disagreement, Jeff has more film news to bore us with. I thought the quiz was coming back. Soon, Phil. Soon. Also coming back is Darren's Dash. More about that and a very special announcement coming later in the show. Nice plug, Darren. Jeff, learn from how Darren builds up our audience. (laughs) (laughs) Greetings and salutations, I'm Jeff. Hi, my name's Graham. Hi, my name is Neil. Hi, my name's Phil. You can find my reviews online at Phil the Bear blog. Hello, I'm Darren, and other than being on At The Flicks, you can follow me on Twitter at Dazza Loves Movie and read my blog at halfedguarded.com. In our last review show, Darren said he was missing the quiz. Since then, three listeners have also written to the show saying three. the same. Three listeners. Three. That's pretty good for our yeah. prospect. Uh, they're not relatives of yours, are they, Darren? <laughs> is, is that 50% of the audience? <laughs> oh, we've tripled then. Um, <laughs> are they relatives of yours, Darren? I'm taking the fifth on that one. Uh, it's not America, mate, but I'll accept your ruling. Moving on, some good news and some bad news for you all. Is the good news that you and your 70s views are leaving? (laughs) 1970s or 1870s. 1070s. He still rants on about the Northern Invasion. Ah, Nielski. I wondered when we'd hear more from you. How's your beloved Chelsea? Ooh, low blow, Jeff. <laughs> According to Nadine Dorries, the thickest, thickest two short blanks yeah, woman. Yeah, but fit. Um, we're on borrowed <laughs> time, but what the hell does she know? Oh. Yeah, Nadine Dorries is what happens when the ventriloquist dies and the dummy car- carries on talking. <laughs> so don't worry, I have even lower news coming for you. Just wait till we get to the reviews. Firstly, back to the good news and bad news. The good news for you lot is, as I said, the quiz will make that appearance next month. So, Darren, you and your family you wrote in can be quiz masters. (laughs) (laughs) The bad news is, this month there's more film news. And let's see if Phil accuses me of false news (laughs) this month. Before I begin the news, a couple of quick announcements. Now, everybody on the planet has probably seen Will Smith slap Chris Rock for mocking his wife. We here at the Flicks are concerned that Mr. Smith may take umbrage at our mocking of his award-winning film, King Richard, in our show 194. We stand 100% behind our gentle humour in our awards piece. However, for the sake of clarity and the off chance we will meet Will Smith, it was all Darren's idea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that sounded painful. Secondly, you may have heard that Vladimir Putin has been given a lifetime ban by the loaf and cheese bub in Burton-on-Trent. We support that move, and while At The Flicks is very popular in Russia, due to offhand comments I may or may not have made, we have turned off the download facility for Mr Putin. <laughs> that is, I'm afraid, a lifetime ban. So hopefully it may not be enforced for long. 
We also held a secret committee meeting to ban Neil Ski for his continuing support of Russian assets being Chelsea and Bodger Johnson. But we are keeping that option open for future review. After ignoring Neil Ski's request to hand over the findings to Cressida Dick. Nice try, Neil. We know that never goes anywhere, except in the death of an innocent Brazilian. Ooh. And, oh, that goes back a bit. Yeah. <laughs> hell. And, and she was responsible for it. Yeah. Um, and now for the movie news. Oh, good. While I <laughs> rip the piss out of everybody else, I will firstly rip the piss out of myself. Yesterday, while <laughs> doing the final touches to this, I accidentally wandered across a film set and thought I was watching the making of The Boys in the Boat from George Clooney. I was, in fact, watching some pickup shots from season two of Slow Horses and mistook Gary Oldman for George Clooney. Even, <laughs> even yes. worse, even worse, I walked right past Jack Loudon thinking he was a bloody extra. Uh, so, so there we go. My credentials shot down in flames. Yeah. So. We won't mention it again. No. Ever. Don't worry. Uh, yeah. fine. You can trust us. I'm sure yeah. I can. So over to the movie news. Now, one of the big ones currently filming in Leavesden Studios is the long-planned Barbie movie. Based on the dolls children used to play with, remember them, Neil? It comes with an <laughs> star cast and a very. <laughs> oh, God. It comes with an all star cast and a very surprising director. The A list casts include the always excellent Margot Robbie as Barbie and Ryan Gosling as the hardly animated Ken. A role he's clearly born to play. <laughs> oh, yeah, just he's already playing, didn't you? There we go. Also in the cast are Will Ferrell, Kate McKinnon, and Michael Cera, and Holy the very cow. talented Rhea Pullman, who, of course, came to fame via the TV series Cheers. The plot revolves around Barbie being expelled from Barbie land for not being perfect enough and her adventures in the real world. To be honest, sounds like me on this podcast. Ooh. Now, I can see Graham pen poised to write down the release date as we speak. It's summer 2023, and it's released at the moment on the same day as Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. I know which one I'll be watching. Double Ooh. bill. Uh, and now the unusual Double bit. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> the which unusual one would you bit. watch first, though? Uh, Barbie. Of course. The reason for that is... The director of Barbie is Greta Gerwig, highly praised for her films Lady Bird and Little Women. A really odd choice, and I think this may not be the bland family adventure everyone was expecting it to be, although I'm sure that Ryan Gosling will still hardly be animated. Uh, Phil, true or false, that one? True. Excellent. My lawyers <laughs> will wait in there. Um, <laughs> next up. Some news to excite Graham. Oh, gee. This oh, will be the God. Graham who recently said Moonfall would have been better if it had cast the legendary Gerard Butler <laughs> and renamed it Moon Has Fallen. <coughs> so Graham will be overjoyed to hear about a double header of films coming from the Gerard. First up, <laughs> first up, and shortly to begin filming, is Kandahar. This is based on a story from one of Neil's heroes, Edward Snowden, <laughs> the story follows a CIA operative and his translator as they flee from enemy forces in Afghanistan and sees Butler star alongside producing duties. Needless to say, that Gerard will be the heroic CIA operative with Ali Fazal as the translator. Now, he was last seen in Death on the Nile. 
Stuntman turned director Rick Roman War is to helm the movie. Expect this one early next year. A shame they can't get it out this year as it sounds like a big awards winner. But wait, Graham, there's more. What? After Kandahar has has, fallen, what have we got? The Gerard, he's no slouch. Despite lockdown, he was acting his heart out in all sorts of movies to keep people like you, his adoring fans, with plenty of content to watch. He's just finished filming The Plane. No, not a throwback to Fantasy Island. This is a tough, no-nonsense Gerard movie in which he'll play tough-named pilot Brody Torrance. <laughs> who's forced to land his plane in a war zone. Here, rebel forces capture the pilot and his passengers, threatening to kill them if their demands aren't met. But, Graham, don't worry. I'm sure that Gerard will rise to the occasion in his full has fallen fashion. Oh, this God, one may no. make it out later this year. Straight to uh, video. <laughs> yes. Yep. So there we are. News guaranteed to put a smile on Graham's face. Faction, That's indigestion, let's... Jeff, not a smile. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to our final bit of film news of the month. And Phil, I picked this one with you in oh, mind. God. <laughs> Sam Mendes is currently filming Empire of Light in Margate. It's a 1980s set love story based on an original story by Sam Mendes himself. It has an old cinema as a key element of the movie. From the little details we've got, and trust me, there isn't much more than what I've just said, it sounds a lot like that recent excellent Sky feature, Save the Cinema, although sadly this one is not Welsh. Now, we'll have to wait till the trailer comes out to get a few more details, because uh, it's being kept well under wraps. But it has the cast that Phil will die for. Olivia Coleman. Colin Firth and Toby Jones. Oh, Sounds like heaven, eh, Phil? <laughs> uh, fine. It's completely fine. Uh, yes. But one yes. thing I think will impress you, Roger Deakins is on board. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So watch the space on that one. Sadly, Film News will take a break next month because Good. of all the letters. I mean, that's letters, a shame. Letters yeah. in the 21st <laughs> century. God almighty. Can anybody I, even write these days? I encourage it. But like Winston, Winston Churchill, I will return. What? Or is that like James Bond? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, keep taking the meds, Jeff. And also continue supplying me with Gerard info, it says here. Plain envelopes <laughs> will do. Let's go over to the review section, and we start with the historical epic, The Northman. One day this kingdom will be yours. Thank you, Father, my king. Father! Remember for whom you shed your last teardrop. I can feel now. Northman, the latest from genius director Robert Eggers, is an historical epic set in the Viking world. Young Prince Amleth watches in horror as his uncle kills his father the king, Ethan Hawke. 
he manages to escape off their island kingdom, vowing vengeance for this treachery. Years later, Amleth, now played by Alexander Skarsgård, has grown strong thanks to a Viking gym and is a berserker used in Viking attack and conquest. During one such attack in the land of Rus, I don't know what Rus has done to deserve this, he learns his uncle Fijona, Fionia. Fionia. Oh, sounded like vagina to me. Fionia. You know. <laughs> Jesus, you've been waiting all day for that one, haven't you? <laughs> we set him up for that one. It's yeah, yeah. Uh, He's been deposed and is living in exile. Amleth sets off to execute his plan of revenge, but even the best laid plans could meet unforeseen circumstances. Phil, that plot has an oddly familiar ring to it. What do you think it is? And do you think this interpretation of that tale any good? Your reference there is to my dinner table conversation with my yep. children. So I watched this and uh, one of our other films as a Saturday morning double bill. And at dinner time, my kids asked me about the films that I watched. And when I described the plot of this one, obviously slightly loosely, because I didn't quite want to give him the graphic details, mm-hmm. um, my son blurted out that it sounded like The Lion King, which, of course... You know, after a bit of research from me, it actually is. So the Northman is based on a Scandinavian legend, which dates back to the 10th or 12th century. Apparently they think 10th, but they've only actually got evidence for 12th. And Shakespeare used that as his inspiration for Hamlet and the Lion King used Hamlet as its inspiration. So yeah, it's the Lion King. And it's also utterly brilliant. Top class, top tier, genius filmmaking. And I'm glad I get to go first because I'll get out how amazing it is. And then you lot will probably all send me a whole <laughs> At least one of us will. If you do care to read my website, I've put a glowing review of this film where I described Eggers as, our, as like entering the stratosphere as a visionary filmmaker because after the promise and flair of his first two films, The Witch, which I know for a fact Jeff hates, and yep. The Lighthouse, which I'm pretty sure he does as well. I haven't um, seen it. I put it, keep putting it off. Okay. So after The Witch and The Lighthouse and The Northman, I guess maybe we should all have a guess as to what the, his fourth thing will be. <laughs> I, I've got a, I can tell you what his next three films okay. are, and that will come up in my review. Okay. okay. <laughs> all right. So maybe Graham's going to tell me how awful it is as well. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so why is it so amazing? Well, it's visually stunning. So it's shot in Northern Ireland, but it's set in Iceland. And the daytime shots are kind of stunning vistas, beautiful scenery, whilst it's nighttime shots are either lit by kind of flame and fire or they have kind of like a monochromatic night vision, especially when we're in some kind of crazy sort of seeing vision of one of their portents and things because it's got quite a lot of fate and uh, witches. The battle scenes are brutal and stunning. There's one shot that follows Amleth charging and scaling a wooden fortress wall, killing all sorts of people on his way and jumping into the path of a horseback rider and it's just fantastic. This is just after we've seen him become a wolf by way of a battle ceremony. But, and that's the bit I was going to get to, it's its commitment to displaying the Viking way of life that I think is spectacular. And I'm pretty confident will put lots and lots of people off because it portrays warrior rituals, burial rites and coming of age rituals. And all of them are bonkers because this is a type of life that we can't relate to, right? Because it's properly as far removed from how we live our lives as it can possibly be. There are shamans, there are witches, 
the dark portents of fate and beliefs, and he uses Willem Dafoe and Bjork to great effect as his crazy shamans and witches. But it's so committed to this alien life, it requires a commitment from us as well. And it's funny because when I was coming out of the cinema, there were a few guys who were just completely baffled by how bonkers it was. And I heard one guy sort of say that, you know, it's great that it was really violent, but those other scenes were a bit weird, weren't they? So, <laughs> um, and I think that it's those bits that will be more off-putting to people than the violence on display. But for me, if you're prepared to go with them, if you're prepared to commit as deeply as the cast and the director have gone, I think that you know, it is fantastic. And the performances, which I've already argued with Jeff about, and I know that he disagrees with me on this, the performances are amazing and they're perfectly pitched for the tone of the film. So Skarsgård has muscles on his muscles. <laughs> I'm not sure that there's a more buff person in film, you know, perhaps Henry Cavill was Superman, but he's just so intense. And there were bits where his portrayal reminded me of kind of DiCaprio in The Revenant because he's just driven on this quest and it doesn't matter what's in front of him. He's sort of just so driven to get where he needs to be. Class Bang um, is a man mountain. His presence as the usurping uncle is just huge. And I've not seen him in anything really apart from the BBC Dracula adaptation that was two or three years ago when he played Dracula. But he should be in more things that's nothing to shout home about either. I know so well. That, I mean, that was mixed as well, but he was good in it, and yep, I think he's he really good in this. Mm. Nicole Kidman gets a monologue that I thought was Oscar-worthy and was akin to you know Shakespeare's Scottish play in you know <laughs> the way that she delivers it. Ethan With Hawke, a Scottish accent as well, in most cases. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ethan Hawke <laughs> is honourable and righteous as the king seen through his father's mm. eyes, and... Anna Taylor-Joy does what Anna Taylor-Joy does best. She looks otherworldly and spooky and weird. Everything, for me, fitted together perfectly. It's a committed tale of Viking vengeance, and I absolutely loved it. Do I need to go and get my earplugs for all your guys' bit? No. Certainly for mine, Phil, absolutely. (laughs) I I wouldn't know where to start with that, so I'll gloss over it and uh, pass (laughs) it on to Graham. Well, Robert Eagers. Yeah, known for his love of the definitive article, The Witch, The Lighthouse, The Northman. And, and, the his, next three, <laughs> and his next three films will be called The Dark, The Darker, and The Darkest. A director who refuses to use a lighting technician, Ellie Alcorn, is listed as the lighting technician on this, on the credits, but I think she missed the flight to Iceland. I didn't see any evidence of her. This might have been a great film, but I could only see about 20% of the action due to Mr. Egger's hatred of photons. (laughs) Despite my visual problems, though, with this movie, I thought it was a great story. Shakespeare in Iceland mixing Hamlet with Macbeth and a dash of the Tempest was great fun. The acting from Alexander Skarsgård was really good, giving us brooding, driven and unhinged Contrasting him, in my mind at least, with whatever it was that Nicole Kidman was trying to do. I've said it before, but being weird is not acting. Anya Taylor-Joy was also acting a bit weird, but in a good way. I just loved the intensity of her strangeness. And and the fact she kept (laughs) taking her clothes off. Mm. Lovely bottom, by the way. Just like to point that out. (laughs) 
<laughs> I just got to stay in. <laughs> or yes. whomever her bottom double is, depending on how she decides is, to is go. Very... Is, 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 yes, she'll be re- yeah. writing to her saying, well, thank you. The scenes with her and Skarsgård having sort of furtive evil planning meetings was just brilliant. I loved the two of them together. I found the whole tale engrossing and entertaining, and I particularly liked the mixing of the the brutal violence reality with the mysticism and the pagan symbolism. Now, obviously, having watched all three Marvel Thor movies, I'm now an absolute expert on (laughs) Nordic mythology, and therefore most of the imaginative sequences, including, and in particular, the Valkyries and uh, Yggdrasil, the world tree, were not I didn't find them at all jarring. I also had the same experience as you, Phil, in that when I was leaving, a lot of people were going, well, that was really weird in places. I didn't <laughs> think it was that weird. You know, it, no. it is that point. It, we're so removed in the 21st century from any of this. I thought it was great. If you're okay with gore, violence, and a sword being pushed through someone's head in slow motion, then this movie's for you. However... You'll need exceptional night vision to get the most from this movie. I so really I like it. I loved the lighting. I thought the oh, lighting was great. Mm. The sort of the the flames and the and the torches of it kind of lit up yeah. the night time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's. I think it might be my cinema because the uh, no, saw... no, it's not. It wasn't that screen for his next film. Eggers is handing out blindfolds as he go in. <laughs> 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 It wasn't that far apart from yours, Phil, what Graham was saying, except no, that we've then. got this disagreement on where everybody stands on Nicole Kidman. Let's see if Neil picks up with that then. Well, this one was a bit intense, wasn't it? As Phil said, it's all stunningly beautiful. Well done, cinematographer Jared Blaschka. A scene set by firelight, as has been mentioned before. It's extraordinary. The revenge story worked for me, and yes, it's Hamlet for Vikings. Well, actually, Prince of Denmark, wasn't he? So it's probably the same. Uh, but for all that, I was completely taken with this movie, thoroughly engaging, and Alexander Skarsgård was awesome. Was that wronged Prince of Denmark? I mean, Raffin Sea or, or Shetland Islands or some fictional place that they invented it in. Um, I love the attention to detail and the intensity of the fighting. Some mm. of it's truly brutal. Some of the accents wavered into Scottish and Irish occasionally, particularly Nicole Kidman, who I don't think added anything. That said, the scene where she meets Amleth again is excellent. The myths and soothsayers, a prophecy, Bjork, Viking life, battles, the one in the land of the Rus, left me absolutely breathless. The scenery and cinematography of of it, the acting generally, all worth the watch. And Anya Taylor-Joy too, fantastic. (laughs) Is that her bottom as well? Nice bottom. Sorry? (laughs) Is that because of her bottom as well? (laughs) Well, Welcome, everybody, to the Dirty Old Men podcast. uh, The Dirty Old Men podcast, yes. She does have a very nice bottom double. Yeah. If it wasn't her. A really well put together, highly ambitious epic about the brutality of life among the Vikings. An excellent blend of Viking reality and the supernatural, like Game of Thrones on steroids. It was brilliant. This was Game of Thrones that had turned off after episode one. Darren, where do you stand then on Nicole Kidman? Well, all I've got to say is that Robert Eggers has done it again. He has absolutely bored the living daylights out of me at the cinema. 
<laughs> well said. This reminds me of when I went to see the lighthouse because when I went to see the lighthouse, all I kept hearing was out this amazing gothic horror that was you know, such a wonderful movie. And I was sat there and absolutely bored the living daylights out of me. And then I've gone to see uh, the, the Northman and pretty much the same thing has happened. Now, now, I've got to say, this is more probably on me than it is the film because I can actually see the good in the Northman. I get the, the, the story. I get the how uncompromising it was, how much detail there was. And Eggers is clearly exploring his passion in, in mythology. And you can tell it's one of those films. It's wonderfully researched. It's so uncompromising. It's brutal. That scene where they raid the, uh, the camp and they, uh, you know, they, they round up all the kids. And it, it's, you, it's, you see it off camera, but they burn them all to death. It, it's harrowing. It's really powerful. But for so much of this film, I just found myself really, really bored. There were always like really weird mystical elements. And I'm probably one of those people you guys walked out of the, uh, the cinema with. I just found myself drifting off. And I realised that these were, you know, philosophical and mythological uh, monologues, which were really, really important to, to what the film was about. But it just couldn't really hold my attention i'm a big william defoe fan and for me to be annoyed when there's a scene in that he's you know the scene where he's doing the whole sort of wolfman initiation it was just you know boring the the hell out there's a line in spinal tap which is about um, too much too much perspective and, and this is this for me is, is kind of what i probably felt <laughs> in this film it, it was probably too realistic there was there was too much mm. sort of you know muck and grime and and the harshness of the of the lives of the characters and again it that is sort of ad, admirable that you're going that way and that you're sort of fully committing to it but at the same time it, you know I, I can watch like say Game of Thrones or The Last Duel and, and get an inkling of sort of like you know that sort of life and not be sort of made to feel so uncomfortable. You know, sitting through it, and of course, but you know, but the darkness and the dimness of, of the film at night, he, he just, I just really did not in, enjoy this film at all. There were moments wow. that where the film seemed to be turning around for me. There's a like a, a some sort of um, sports game, felt like a Gaelic sports game that, that happens. And that was a really, yeah. you know, exciting scene. It had some sort of development and, and sent the, you know, the, the story, the development of a character in a different way. And when he, you know, Skarsgård starts his revenge and, and, you know, the brutality of what he does of it, I started to get somewhat, you know, on board with it. Unfortunately, again, that sort of like, you know, descended into this, you know, this weird final battle of sort of like, you know, in hell type territory and everything. And, and again, it just kind of, in some films, I probably would have liked, you know, liked that scenery. In this one, I'd sort of lost my patience for it. Performances, I, you know, I, I thought were great. I did think Nicole Kidman was good in this. And I did really like the twist in her characters. Came out of, of left field and, you know, and I thought it was a, a fantastic moment in, in the movie. But as a whole, it's one of those films that makes me glad I'm not a natural paid professional critic. Because, you know, to, to you know, and, and I've got to admit, when I came out of here, I felt a real slug that I was actually going to have to talk about this film because I really didn't want to have to relive it in my mind. It's a film that I can just say I, I didn't like. I can see the worth in it. 
and I can even, so to say, admire some moments of it. But as a film, I I really just did not like it. I will say I I am very glad that in this day and age, where we sort of you're hearing out sort of how um, how Hollywood mm. is getting more safer and more corporate. Yeah. I am glad that there is somebody like Robert Eggers <clears throat> making films which are adventurous and following a vision. It's just a shame that I personally could not get personally on on board with him. I you know I didn't like it, and I'd be disingenuous if I if I said I did. Okay, thank you, Darren. Now, lads, you know me. I always like <laughs> to, to be positive and honest, and that's a hard yeah. thing to when? balance. You know, all the time, Graham. All the time, you just don't <laughs> notice it. And I'm going to start with a positive here, and it's one of the few I have for this overblown effort. The Northman is a far better film than The Witch, without shadow of a doubt. And from the same genre, that other bastardization of mythology, The Green Knight. But now let's go from the positive to my honesty. Overall, this is a pretentious mess where the budget clearly went on good holiday chalets in Iceland while leaving the lightning specialist maroon back home. Graham's <laughs> already alluded to that. Like The Lion King, which Phil has mentioned, this takes a lot of the plot of Hamlet and indeed elements of Macbeth, particularly Lady Macbeth, and turns what should be a simple tale into an overinflated and portentous mess. It's full of omens and dreams rather than the bloody revenge Viking tale the trailers and production stills led us, particularly me, to expect. It you doesn't can't help blame the marketing department. They're not involved in the making of the film. <laughs> it doesn't help that Eggers is also and never has been an actor's director. The acting is awful. The main characters are unsympathetic and the female one's underwritten. Clearly part of the budget was spent on Skarsgård's gym. That's G-Y-M, Neil, for the spelling. None was spent removing the ham from Nicole Kidman's career worst <laughs> performance. And by the way, Phil, the only speech she'll be given will be at the Razzies or Anna Taylor-Choi's costumes when she was wearing them. In fact, most of the time she could have been an extra in a Benny Hill show. Oh, and, well, that does kind of go down well with a worldwide audience, isn't it? Yeah. And, and that ended bloody hell! Two naked men fighting by a volcano. It might work for Neil, oh, but not for the rest of. No, Robert. <laughs> they will not allow you to remake Revenge of the Sith on the strength of this. And as bad as that was, it's far superior to this. Yet what really frustrates me with the Northman, and Darren has touched on this, is there are glimpses of what could have been. The sports match is a wonderful example of excitement, tension and rage, which is missing from the rest of the film. I bet that was his showreel. He did that in his backyard to get the funding for this nonsense. And then the ultimate damning with faint praise, the locations were great. So to sum up, a total missed opportunity. I'm now going back to watch the classic Kirk Douglas Vikings movie. Now, there's a tale of revenge that was exciting and had Tony Curtis. <laughs> well done. Oh, tell us what you think then, Jeff. Yeah. Why don't yeah, you? Stop sitting on the Bill, fence. do you want to come back on any of that? I mean, no? to be fair, I mean, everyone listening knew that when I said I liked it, that it would get to you and you would say you hated it. Yes, I reckon indeed. anyone who listens to this show was just like, yeah, it's obvious what's going to happen next. Yes. <laughs> you you yes. mean like Deck not only tweeted what I was going to say about this film, and I haven't spoken to him, he actually <laughs> tweeted what my film of the month is as well. Yeah, yeah, but that was obvious also right from the oh, start. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sad I'm so shallow. 
Yes. Um, <laughs> it's yes. all right. We, we're, we're your support group, Jeff. Don't yes. worry. We'll get we're, you through we're this. We're sad you're shallow as well. Right. Okay. Moving on. Well, that was a confrontational start. I'm sure at least one of our reviewers will now be out for revenge. The Northman is currently showing in cinemas only. Let's move on to more dodgy characters with the latest superhero movie, Morbius. People are strange. Dr. Michael Morbius, you've been missing for two months. When you're a stranger. Then you were found on a container ship that washed up off Long Island. Faces look ugly. When you're alone What did you do to yourself, Doctor? I wish I knew I have increased strength and speed And some form of bat radar There's something inside of me Who wants to hunt And consume blood Half the city wants to kill you we haven't had anything this good since that thing in San Francisco. The other half wants to control you. Hey, uh, Dr. Mike, you and I should stay in touch. Are you here to heal the world? Or to destroy it? Another Marvel anti-hero comes to the screen from the same superhero universe, yes, I know you hate that expression, Jeff, as Venom. Michael Morbius, Jared Leto, winner of our acting award last year, (laughs) it wasn't a good award, has been ill most of his life with a rare blood disease. After years of studying, he believes he's found a cure, a controversial one involving vampire bats, if only we had thought of that for COVID. In one sense, it does work. He is cured. It comes, however, at a price. Morbius has become a vampire himself and needs to drink human blood to stay alive. As Morbius tries to control his habit, he learns he is not the only human transformed in this way. There is another, one far more dangerous. Graham, a Marvel now going into horror territory. God. Yeah, definitely. And this was horrible. (laughs) That's that's all I've got to say. I mean, this really makes me want to watch uh, Mahershala Ali's Blade movie because it cannot be any worse than this nonsense. This had so much potential that was wasted. Jared Leto was so annoying in this. If there was a competition to pick the most annoying actor in Hollywood, Leto would come second, just to be annoying. (laughs) Jared Leto, as an actor, makes the character of Morbius unbelievable, unlikable, uninspiring, and hopefully soon unemployable. Contrasting his performance with Matt Smith, who is in a supporting role, but he was giving 100% commitment, just made Leto's 1% effort feel insulting. I really don't think... This is the movie the director set out to make. This has the look of a film that's been messed with by producers. Some of the scenes seem to be out of chronological order. The opening scene made no sense. And why was it the start of the movie? I just couldn't understand it. This film was quite simply a mess and a hugely missed opportunity. They really should have gone to streaming. It was awful. I hated it. Every minute of it. You mixed your reviews up. I think that's what you meant to say about the Northman. <laughs> <laughs> you hoped I'd say about the Northman. Oh, I, I oh, just move on. 
Well, stop picking on Jared, I say. Darren! <laughs> I can't wait for Blade as well, actually, because then we can have a Blade and Morbius... <laughs> um, we can have a Blade and Morbius team-up yeah. movie where Blade basically just kills Morbius in the first five minutes and we can just sort of move on with our lives. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and everybody I, I, cheers. Yeah. I just thought this movie was dire. I mean, it was an absolute slog to get through. And it, it's also the, the worst thing you can say for a superhero movie. It just wasn't any fun. I mean, I've got to say... When the only things yeah. that I can say I enjoyed about Morbius was a the mid credit scenes, and also trying to read the Easter eggs which were on the brief shots of the front of the Daily Bugle that we saw. And this is coming from me, a, a fan of these sort of movies. We, we know we're in trouble. Yeah. The headlines on on the newspapers were hinting at a, um, stories which were way more exciting than what we were watching. There was stuff about the black cat on there, whether she was friends or foe. And I'm sat there thinking, I want to watch that movie. I don't want to be watching this crap. So, Do you think the production team were doing that deliberately, Darren? Possibly, yeah. It, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> it's it's probably the, the only sort of you know good thing that this sort of movie was what was doing. Yeah, I mean it, it could have been interesting, but it was just there was nothing really inventive about it. They were going for like a, a gothic style tragedy but it just made it feel slower and dull vampire movies have, have moved on to you know even films like say the, the lost boys or near dark are sort of old movies but they sort of had a bit of a sort of coolness about vampires you know something something ex- exciting and, and i wish we could get back to that instead of either romance or, or tragedy and just have sort of like you know really cool vampires that's why i can't wait for blade to come back you know let's give it a guy walking down the street with a leather jacket and sunglasses on that's the sort of vampires i want to see and the, the thing about this film that, that, that really struck me is that you had matt smith like like you mentioned that he's basically been you know he was really sort of giving everything and he just had loads of charisma i actually wonder if we'd have got a better film if he'd actually been morbius and Gerard Leto had been the, the vampire because Smith's got the charisma and the likability, and you probably have some sort of like you know you know, you know um, sympathy for him. I think he could have pulled off the role of here a lot better. And Gerard, because you know he does have that really spooky, sinister personality down well. I think you know that could have been you know that would have been a better villain. And and I just think that and the thing about it is that. Every time Gerard popped up, I just wanted to groan. And, you know, his, his scenes, you know, and when he's the star of the movie, he's the guy that you're meant to be basically wanted to see in other movies. With superhero movies, you, you live and die by the actual, you know, your, your your main characters. And even if you've sort of not got generally good films, you can still get away with it somewhat if you've got characters who are um, either funny or entertaining. You know, the Venom movies are, are not greatly written movies, but at least they've got a great double act there, which is entertaining. And this didn't have that. And I just thought it was just absolutely really, really bland uh, and not fun at all. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing new to say that Sony when they're not actually being produced by Marvel, I don't think they're, you know, anywhere near as, as good as the ones where Marvel have, have got a hand in for it. But even so, you know, they, they, they could have done something with, you know, better with this. I, I don't know, but with the delays and everything, I, I just feel that this is one that they sort of knew they had a bit of a turkey on their hands and just kind of like just sort of 
dropped it out there and um, you know thrown in those Easter eggs just to give it a little bit of relevancy. Okay, can I just point out to both of you? That's you, Graham, and you, Darren. There are actually three Blade movies out there. I don't know if you've seen them, but they do exist. <laughs> They're masterpieces. Uh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Masterpieces. But absolutely. Yeah. What if, okay. If, no, if that's fine. you want something new, in right. fact, Blade 2 is just brilliant. Yeah. Well, what's, not, what's the line? Some ourselves are just trying to skate uphill. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not as harsh as you guys in my, guys in my criticism of anything. And I, I always like to look for the good in things. And <laughs> I actually think this is not that bad a film. It's certainly oh, a lot. Come on. It's certainly a lot better than Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Yeah, that's and a to low be honest, bar. Daniel yes, Espizona, this is his best film to date. He no, made no. the awful Child 44 before we forget. However, where I will agree with you all, like the Venom sequel, this film does appear to be made by a committee. There's much evidence that the that the movie was subject to recutting by studio executives who think they understand how the tropes of superhero movies work. They should have just come and talked to me. But they <laughs> lack the understanding of the character beats that's essential for the action to work. Now, you don't have to believe me. Just check out all the different trailers and note everything that's missing from the final product. As a result, the viewing experience is incredibly disjointed. And I think, Graham, you picked up on that as well. And I'll give a good example. The Skull Island-type opening is very powerful. It would have been even more powerful if the IMAX in the cinema I was in was working properly. But where does that scene fit into the film? It's not clear. And in fact, the film's book ended like this. Spoiler alert. The final mid-credit sequence shows Vulture and Morbius teaming up. How and why has no context. It's like one of those born credit sequences which take place halfway through the next film. This disjointed structure means characterizations are paired back to the bone. A shame, as Jared Leto gives his <laughs> best performance in years. And I think you're harsh. And it's a low bar right again. <laughs> no, Very low bar. I, I was the one that fought against him getting worst actor in, at the, um, in our awards. You didn't. You're so me writing history, Jeff. But I also agree that Matt Smith does give the best performance in the film. But again, it's undermined by much of his character development being cut. And that includes a scene where he steals the cure. You know, the, the, an obvious cutaway shot and cut back shot to see that the, the vial is missing just isn't there. So you've got these two characters. They are you know, best friends who become worst enemies. And you could do something different with that. But it plays out like the cliche it is. Apart from those two, no other character makes an impression other than expecting Tyrese Gibson to do that really awful and annoying shtick he does in Fast and Furious. Mm -hmm. But there are moments that make the film worth watching, which is where I think you guys are being harsh. And it <laughs> mainly is how it plays out with its vampire references. The ship is called the Murno, after, mm -hmm. of course, the director and Asferatu. The whole thing with holy water and this thing about the stake going through the heart, which is lovely in the way that, you know, when you see how Matt Smith is actually dispensed with. Uh, that's a spoiler alert, but it's too late now, isn't it? It's a bit late, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's okay, because well, no one should bother watching it. Yeah, exactly. so, <laughs> Indeed. So I think there are flashes. I think there's things within that structure that had a lot of potential. And I've got to be honest, and Phil, you know me, <laughs> I, was never, I was never bored. So I am, unlike you lot, I would rather see the sequel to this than uh, A New Blade. <sighs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Neil, 
Well, I didn't think it was that bad. What? I mean, I did, I disappointedly, you, I, I'm so disappointed in myself that I found <laughs> myself agreeing with Jeff. There were flashes of potential, but now Darren has put the idea of swapping the leads into my head. I agree it would have been better, I think. I did hear the rather cruel comment that Jared Leto wasn't even the best Jared in the film. That goes to Jared Harris, obviously. Um, the film Ooh, seems to... This film seems to exist only as a, a, well, obviously an origin story, but everything just there is a precursor to the mid credit scene so that we know who the bloke is that Vulture is talking to. It doesn't add anything else. There are far better superhero origins, and I'm sure there will be worse, maybe. It's just that it's all a bit dull and lifeless. I mean, I said it wasn't that bad, but it was. It was dull and life. I don't believe it's a terrible film. Some critics seem to have written their copy based on Jared Leto being in it and before seeing the film. As Jeff said, there are flashes of potential. It's just that the good bits are in the next film. It's a vampire film that ironically lacks bite. A fair uh, review, uh, Neil. Uh. Fair review. <laughs> yes, yeah. Now I'm sure that uh, now that you've come around to that way of thinking, I'm, I'm sure that we can hand that over to Phil. <laughs> and obviously I look for the good in everything. <laughs> I like to give a balanced opinion. <laughs> so, I, mean, uh, I don't know. So I think Graham and Darren said it up top. The biggest crime that Morbius commits is that it is incredibly dull and it makes little sense, um, which in the grand scheme of things are two issues that make it impossible to get any real enjoyment from the film. I had a slightly different opinion of Matt Smith and Jared Leto than uh, most of you guys, I just felt that they were in two different films. Smith is like histrionic and pantomime villain, whilst Leto is like this broody and smouldering. Oh, I'm look so amazing! And uh, Smith's Milo, constantly stalking Morbius, made literally no sense to me. After I came out of the film, I was like, "Why does he need to chase after him? He's got what he wants." Like, there's literally no reason for it. So there's, like, one throwaway line in the film where he's like, I'm going to make you understand. But it doesn't make any sense. Why is Milo now mortal enemies with Morbius? I mean, seriously, think about it. Why was he chasing him? Couldn't he just went, I've got what I want, see you later, pal, and moved on? I don't get it. That's a good point. Can I do my review again? Wasn't he, trying, wasn't he trying to blame him? So he knew that they'd come looking for somebody. So he was trying to blame him. So everything, you know, the police were looking for Morbius and he could continue doing his work in the shadows. I mean, because obviously that would work amazingly because once they caught Morbius and he then killed someone, which he literally did in the film, <laughs> it would make perfect sense and he would have got away with everything, right? doesn't make sense like seriously go, go back and watch it again no don't yeah. don't sorry no don't, no, don't, don't bother I, i've um, got the, i've got it ordered on blu-ray so don't worry <laughs> <laughs> so the love interest which I, none of you have mentioned because obviously it's too boring so adria arjona who played the love interest she's literally there a sequel bait as a, another character that will appear in the morbius universe and and other than being sequel bait she's just a damsel in distress at the end of the film yep 
the FBI characters, which Jeff mentioned, are completely pointless. One of them's meant to be like just completely sort of like I'm going to get shit done, Tyree Gibson sort of thing, and the other's meant to be comic interest. But actually, they're both just Basil Exposition from Lost in Powers <laughs> films. Um, and the, the, final, <laughs> the final showdown is just as usual, and this happens a lot with Marvel films as well to some extent. It's just an incomprehensible CGI mess. When it finished, I literally was sat in the cinema and I was like, is that it? Surely he's going to get up and there's going to be another like, oh, he survived that. And there's, oh, no, he is dead. Oh, it's over. Okay. What? <laughs> like, what? And the amount of times, and you, Graham, you mentioned this, and I think, well, actually, I think all of you mentioned this. The amount of times you think you've just lost the scene is crazy. Yes. There's, yeah. There's a bit about two thirds of the way through the film where he steals a lab from some criminals. So there's a whole setup. There's a scene in the cafe where he kind of sees it. Oh, there's these people and they're talking about this thing. And then he goes and he does like this, I'm a brilliant, cool, I'll take these villains down situation. Now I've got a lab because I can't possibly access the lab where people will be murdered and stuff because the FBI and everything all over that. And I think it's literally in the next scene, he's back at the original lab. And it's like, what? (laughs) What? And the lab that he just stole from the criminals is never mentioned again. It's like, what on earth is going on? Like, made no sense. And the post-credit scenes, I have to say, are diabolical. They are the height of nonsensical. Like, this whole thing, and I know it's a massive spoiler, but I just have to get this off my chest. But So the vulture, who has now apparently come into this world, and is released because he appears in a prison and they don't know, oh, no, there's a guy who's appeared in our prison. Best let him go. (laughs) That's a bit weird. Let's just let the guy go. And then he's in full vulture garb and, like, meets up with with Morbius. Now, all the vulture gear that he had in the film, the Spider-Man films, was from the Avengers old gear that everyone left behind. Has that happened in this? And suddenly he's got access to all that stuff to make the same gear and the same stuff. But but, that, but that's my point, Phil. That's what I was saying is that that's like one of those born things that there's a whole lead up to that that's going to be part of the sequel. Well, there is now because everyone's going, that's a total load of rubbish and made no sense. <laughs> and I have to do that now, right? Because why does Morbius care about Spider-Man? Like, it literally it, it, makes no sense. That, that, again, goes back to my point. There's like born... There's a whole pro- there's a whole thing, that I, and okay. I think it was designed like that. I, I do give them the benefit of the doubt. It's an after credit scene, though. I mean, we've, we've uh, you know we've, we've done that many times in in the past. I mean, the uh, the, the one for the Civil War was a scene that was halfway through the movie. It's just to give you a bit of anticipation of something something that's going to happen. It doesn't have to tell the whole story within the after credits of what's going to happen. It's just a little teaser for what's coming up. Next, it's kind of like a trailer within a movie. That's what after credits are. Mm, I just, I'm unconvinced. Don't take away by... the one thing I enjoyed in the film and the one thing that had any sort of <laughs> 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 okay. right, the whole point right. of the film, really. Okay, all right. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll let you have that bit, Dan. Sorry. 
I'll let you have it. But I mean, it's not hyperbole to say I sent the guy and I, I sent the guys a photo just to prove this as well. But when I got home, I pulled out the Amazing Spider-Man issues 689 and 690 because I wanted to read a good Morbius story. And I particularly like that one. And I sent the guys a photograph of um, the comics just to prove that I had to like just cleanse the palette of this dross. <laughs> um and it is worse than both the Venom movies, and no. we've reviewed both of those on this show, and everyone knows what I thought about those. So for me to say it's worse, I'll just end it with, someone please help Sony stop ruining this stuff. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that's a fair point, that they do need somebody overall to have a vision like that, whoever that chap is with Marvel. Kevin, Kevin Feige. Feige. Feige, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah okay. Another controversial review from the team. Is there going to be any agreement this month? You can fly down to your local cinema to watch Morbius or wait a couple of weeks to catch up with it on video on demand, as I'm sure everybody else on this podcast is trying and getting ready to do. So from fantasy to reality for our next review. In five weeks, 100,000 British forces will strike Sicily's southern shore. Unfortunately, the Nazis know of our intentions. So we're going to play a humiliating trick on Hitler. <laughs> we have to convince Germany that our target is Greece. Prime Minister, that's too big a risk. The fate of the world is at stake. The plan is highly implausible. So when can it be ready? Well, what say we start with the easy part and find ourselves a corpse? In stories of war, there is that which is seen and that which is hidden. In God's name, Fleming, what are you writing? Spy story. In the hidden war, the truth is protected by a bodyguard of lies. Its soldiers unseen pray. Its heroes unsung. This is our war. Nineteen forty-three, World War Two. The Allied forces are planning the invasion of Sicily. They know that this is the logical place for the invasion into Europe from Africa. But so does Hitler and anybody who has a map. How do you convince the Germans to move their forces from Sicily? Answer: You make them think the invasion is somewhere else. A team of intelligence officers, including a young Ian Fleming, played by Johnny Flynn, come up with an audacious plan to fool the Germans, which they call Operation Mincemeat. Jeff, as you were probably around at this time, is it true to facts? Oh, dear. Very good, Neil. Well, in regard to the operation, yes, it is. However, before I go into detail about the film, I would like to reflect on the real Operation Mincemeat, which, of course, was um, helped by the Welsh, even though he was dead. Um, <laughs> when I left the cinema, I was astounded by how audacious the planting of the body was and all the steps that then had to fall into line for it to be believed and actually work. The fact it did is a testament to the out-of-the-box thinking on show by Ewan Montague, played here by Colin Firth and Clifton Webb in the 1956 version, The Man Who Never Was. A debt of gratitude is also due to the German intelligence chief, Von Rohn, who almost certainly knew this was a plant and let it go to Hitler, uh, as he had done with other operations, and indeed, Rohn was later shot as part of the attempted assassination of Hitler, as depicted in the film Valkyrie. 
enough with the history before I bore Phil too much. <laughs> I have to be honest, as a film, it's not perfect. It's clearly designed for an older and more discerning audience, which is why I liked a lot of it, <laughs> along with, unfortunately, it will also appeal to those Brexiteers who revel in World War II triumphs and think that Downton Abbey was such a marvellous time to be a serf. For them, you have Colin Firth and Penelope Wilton play into that OAP crowd, never stepping outside the roles that they normally create. It also adds a stiff upper lip, at least I hope it's his lip, love infatuation between Firth and MacDonald, which did not happen in real life. In fact, it moves the focus of the film from the path of the mission to something that, for me, isn't that interesting and just makes the film far too long. If only that time had been taken to throw that subplot out and expand upon the journey of the body and the false papers. Those movements seem rushed in comparison with the romance, a shame as that change could have made this movie an absolute cracker, even if the invasion on screen is undertaken by four men and a bit of saving Private Ryan leftover kit. Mm. Oh, and Thomas Newman's score is fantastic. And finally, and I don't know if anybody's ever going to listen to this outside of the people I'm talking to now, a little bit for the Woker Artery. I've been hearing a lot recently about Philadelphia and how Tom Hanks' character, who's gay, should have been played by a gay man. And I listen to that. I think Hanks give a great performance. And yet you can't have it both ways. Churchill was played by Simon Russell Beale, who's a gay actor. So you've got a gay actor playing a famous heterosexual man. You can't have your cake and eat it. You know, these these two guys give pretty good performances in both films. But if you start going to go look, go in looking at the sexuality of the actors concerned, then you've got to stop this nonsense. So I think that was just something I thought of as as I walked out of the cinema so I didn't have to focus on that stupid love story. I think, I think what you're saying is that film. we should let actors act roles. Correct. Oh, the, That's yeah. right. There's a yes. radical thought. Eh? Wow. Yes. yes, because if we take it to the extreme, Daniel Day-Lewis would never have been in my left foot. No. Think about it. And now I've dropped philosophy on you guys. I will hand over to Darren. I mean, this story is just absolutely fascinating. And it's one of those, when you, when you hear the premise of it, it just sounds, you know, too weird to be to be true but you know it is but it absolutely is and it's it's perfect for a um for a film to be made of it and, and what i liked about this film is is it allowed that story you know to 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 play to play out most of this film is the story all the ups and downs of the plot i think it's engaging it's very dramatic it's it's got that sort of argo type feel to it in that every so often just as things seem to be, get, you know, getting momentum and other obstacles thrown in the way that they have to, you know, overcome it. Like family member turns up who wants to claim the body that they're going to use, or the the briefcase that they um that they're trying to get into the uh, secretly into the German hands is given back to them, and they've got to basically sort of give it back again. You know, all these little sort of like you know these little obstacles that were, were thrown at them, you know, it, it did really feel like, you know, a, a, a well-crafted spy drama. And I'll be honest, I don't know how much of this is, is true or not, but I just absolutely loved the the story. And, and it's one of those things that because of history, you, you know how it turns out, you know, everything turns out good in the end, but it's, you still got that sort of like that tension that it managed to get across. So I, I, I really liked it, you know, and, 
the one thing to take away from this and the one thing to really to really criticise it is that the uh, the three-way, the, the, the love triangle completely got in the way of the film. I, I mean, I, I, I really was not interested. It didn't go anywhere. There was no sort of like, you know, real dramatic resolution to it. it. It felt really tacked on. And I think that it feels like the reason why they did that is this film was mainly sort of upper-class toffs and stiff characters, stiff upper lip. And so maybe they felt that they needed to bring a little bit of the human drama and a bit of warmth. The melodramatic sense of it just felt really, really old-fashioned. I, I was far more interested in the in the role of the brother who, and his um, possible links to the uh, Communist Party and, and the effect that that had, whether he was a spy, that, which that kind of story fizzled out. That was the sort of thing that I think connected well into the story. And maybe, and I would imagine that a story like this, there'd be a lot of political um, shenanigans going on behind the scenes. And, and of course, for one thing as well, we never really got a sense of of what was happening on the German side, how they were sort of like, you know, deal with, with the body and, and, and everything. So I think. I think there are other elements they could have, you know, thrown in there to, to spice it up. But, you know, the, the love story was just, it, it just felt very old-fashioned. And and just to go back to what Jeff says, when you know, the, the actual, the audience for this, when I went to see it, I, I would, you know, it was that kind of, it wasn't, it was about sort of a quarter full. I went in, in the daytime. And the vast majority of those were basically older people. And for that, I think it was sort of it was done really well because this is a very safe movie. But there's not a lot of creativity in it, and it's a throwback to simple times. But you know, sometimes you know that the story did actually you know suit that. It was a, you know a good wartime drama. It didn't need to be anything more than that. But one thing that sort of baffled me, and maybe I I missed this, but there was one really interesting obstacle that came that came along in the film when the uh, when the mysterious guy turned up in Kelly McDonald's flat. I I was really intrigued to, to see who who this actually was, and I don't think we ever actually got a revelation of whoever he was, and that was the I don't I don't know if I, I missed it or not, but that was. That was probably the real, you know, but when when the uh, when we when the credits at, at the end, when it also to shows you what happened to all the different characters and everything, I thought we might get a little res- re- resolution to that, and, and we never did. No, I thought the, they said he was German spy. Yeah, but and and probably sent in by von Rohn just okay. to give that hint that we're going to go ahead with it. But I just want to pick up on something you said there, Darren. So I wish I'd mentioned that that sequence where you know the guy whose body they were going to use, his sister turns up and says, you know, he didn't have much in life, and now you're taking his body away from me, so I can't even bury that. Uh, I thought that was a really powerful sequence. Mm, it was, yeah. Great. I have a plan, sir. Really, Boric? A cunning and subtle one? Yes, sir. As cunning as a fox who's just been appointed professor of cunning at Oxford University? <laughs> yes, sir. That's what I thought. I thought this was a cunning plan. Film. And if you like cunning plans, then this is the film for you. Brought to the big screen by the director who brought you Shakespeare in Love, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, the best exotic Marigold Hotel. It's he's a very British director who does delivers the goods in a timely and correct manner without the distraction of excitement, plotting, pacing, or consistency of tone, you know, the things that make a movie memorable. 
this is a by the numbers, you know, ingenious Brits outfox the dastardly Hun with a wizard wheeze. You know, that sort of film. It's made for a certain age group, but I think we've all said it, which sadly I'm part of. It's solid and dependable, like roast dinner on a Sunday. It's just not that exciting or intellectually stimulating. Well, you've not had one of my roast dinners then, have you? <laughs> so if you like wartime tales, then this is an enjoyable film. If you like twists and turns and a clever script, might I suggest The Imitation Game or The 39 Steps or the three obscure yet excellent films Jeff's about to suggest, I'm sure, and will interrupt me. Take it away, Jeffrey. Yeah, and I'd actually gone and done that. That would have been impressive, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, Graham, absolutely right. There's The Passage, the Anthony Quinn, Malcolm McDowell film from uh, 1979, which is, you know, rather impressive. You've got some of the lesser tales of uh, Alistair MacLean, like Force 10 from Navarone, young Harrison Ford in, which uh, is also really good daring do adventure film where they blow up a dam which is referenced quite cleverly in apocalypse now and uh, for my final take on this i would say play dirty with michael kane another little mm. world war ii oh. gem that is little seen these days yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jeff. Yep, you're as predictable as the plotting of this movie. <laughs> Things that worked for me in this movie were the problems that the British had in Spain. I think Definitely. everybody said that, where the team at MI5 wanted the Germans to open the documents, but the British consulate in Spain were trying to prevent this. It was also quite fun that the fate of the whole deception depended on a gay hand job in a Spanish park. <laughs> uh, was that played by a gay actor or a straight actor? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Things I didn't like. I really didn't need the things are not going well at home, so let's have an office fling subplot. Really? Don't they realise there's a war on? My review when I had seen this movie was, it's okay-ish, and I stand by that. Didn't it make you want to be Welsh, seeing that yet again we helped everybody out? (laughs) Yeah, 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 Yeah. that's it, Yeah. yeah. I thought it was really symbolic that they scraped a homeless Welsh guy off the street and threw him in the sea. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Phil. Uh, Yeah, I've got to get myself together after that. (laughs) Take down of the Welsh people there. (laughs) Um, Racism is loose. To be honest, I feel like Graham kind of said everything I was going to say, actually. I'm sorry. Um, Operation Mitzman is a sort of perfectly oiled filmmaking machinery that kind of smacks a prestige picture but just isn't. So you've mentioned it's it's by the director John Madden is the guy who's behind Shakespeare in Love and Mrs. Brown and the exotic Marigold Hotel films. And Jeff mentioned the British royalty of Colin Firth and Penelope Wilton. So it's kind of got all those kind of elements, you know, for that kind of audience that you've mentioned as well which i don't think i fit into quite yet guys i've got to say i agree that the love story wasn't needed for me it's another example of hollywood having this the actor who's 16 years the senior of the actress but he's irresistible to her despite the fact that he's married and got kids it's like I just didn't believe that for a second either. No. I, I kind of felt that Matthew McFadden, who you know, was he was the lead as far as I'm concerned. Matthew yeah. McFadden's Charles Cholmondley, he was my lead in Family. the film. Yeah. And if anyone was going to have a romance with Kelly McDonald's character, it was him. And I just the whole 
romance subplot was just not only was it not needed, it wasn't believable in any sense either, I didn't think. For me, the absolute best facet of the film was Johnny Flynn's portrayal of Ian Fleming and the resulting jokes from Matthew McFadden's Charles Cholmondley that everyone in the spy service was writing a book. I thought that was hilarious. It kept yep, coming yes. up. And there's one bit where he was like, are you writing a book as well? He's somebody who's... Um, <laughs> Absolutely astonished, wasn't yeah, he? Not yeah, you again uh, as well. <laughs> yeah, the references to M and Q, I mm. thought were really good fun as well. You know, kind of this whole idea that Fleming is getting all of his ideas as he's going along for his you know famous characters. And whilst you are along for the ride, you will be completely wrapped up in the tension and drama and you will really enjoy yourself. But I cannot imagine myself ever needing to revisit this film. I've it's got it a- ordered on Blu-ray. <laughs> well... Yeah, don't even bother taking the shrink wrap off and just put it on the shelf. It's fine. And a few of you said it already. It's just a perfectly safe film that sits alongside the likes of The King's Speech and The Imitation Game, which you already mentioned, Graham, as those British historical films. They're perfectly enjoyable, but they're not necessarily going to indelibly live on in your mind. So, you know, it's not rubbish. You will enjoy yourself. Mm but it won't change your world either. It's just, you know, it's perfectly fine. And then you know, maybe in a few years' time, you'll see it on Channel 4 and you'll be like, oh, I, I, so I've missed half an hour, but I'll jump in, it's fine. And you'll watch 45 mm-hmm. minutes and actually think, well, I'll go to bed now because I don't need to see the end. It's that sort of film. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, though, that Johnny Flynn is in danger of taking over from people like Colin Firth to take that role on in the future? He seems mm-hmm. to play that sort of part all the time. Yeah. The first film I saw him in was Beast, which um, was him and the stunning British actress. Oh, yes, with the red hair. Jessie Buckley. Jessie yes, Buckley. Jessie that Buckley. is a yeah. weird film. It is a weird film, but both of them was the first time I'd seen both of them, and they were both stunning and amazing. Mm. And she has fulfilled that potential, I think, and he has not. And I would love for him to head back into that territory and get those sorts of roles Mm. rather than be the next Colin Firth. Interesting. Neil? Uh, Yes, I'm echoing what everybody else says based on the book, by the excellent book by Ben McIntyre. and One of those British films we do so well, we've mentioned so many. So the love story, it's just a plot device really so that you know you see them brainstorming ideas while they're sort of getting to know each other and also for creating tension between Colin Firth and the excellent Matthew McFadden um, the subtext of the young requited love has just been completely unnecessary really and when Colin Firth blurted out his love for Kelly MacDonald I half expected him to speak in broken Portuguese like <laughs> love actually or something um, <laughs> Jason Isaacs was absolutely brilliant as the Admiral who thought the plan was really stupid and Simon Russell Beale took his turn as Churchill with a plum. The in-jokes about everyone writing books has been said before and Ian Fleming creating Bond worked really well, especially why he coined the nickname M. It's an extraordinary story that would be scarcely believable if it wasn't true and the film does the material justice. Brilliant. 
good shout out for Jason Isaacs, who mm. was very good in the film, actually. Yeah. 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 He just chewed the scenery, didn't he? His, he played it, it the just... same character as he did in the one about uh, Stalin. That's Stalin, yeah. yeah. Death, Death of Stalin, Stalin. Yes. 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 Yes, he did. He, I, I, I didn't notice that. that. that yeah. 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 He, he just, um, yeah. I think it's absolutely stupid. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. well, the Prime Minister likes it, so we're going yeah, ahead. So that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that was Operation Mincemeat currently showing in European cinemas and on Netflix around the rest of the world. For our final review, something hopefully a little bit more fun. The Bad Guys. Hey, you! Get over here! Oh, I know what it is. You're afraid because I'm the big bad wolf. The villain of every story. And this is the crew. Miss Tarantula, Mr. Shark, Mr. Piranha, Mr. Snake. Everyone copy. 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 We're the bad guys. It's crime time, baby. Shark. We need a distraction. Do I get to improvise? Fine. Please be subtle. I'm having a baby! Is there a doctor? Or perhaps several security guards that could leave their post and help me? We were never given a chance to be anything more than criminals. But these are the cards we've been dealt, so we might as well play them. Here, let me help you. An animated feature from DreamWorks. The famous bad guys, a criminal gang led by Mr. Wolf, voiced by Sam Rockwell. Yes, he's a real wolf. In fact, the gang are all animals. There is Snake, Tarantula. You watch this, Jeff? It was a struggle. (laughs) Shark and Piranha. All goes well, sorry, bad, until they are caught during one of their most ambitious crimes. The gang offers to go straight, to be good guys. Is this a ruse, or do they really want to change their ways? The Bad Guys has been a big hit state size. Darren, is it worthy of success? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, for for me, I absolutely love the style of the film i found it really refreshing because we always talk about you know animation now to to me this was like a cartoon it had that sort of like Mm. old school bugs bunny type look to it and i found that really endearing it looked like it was it wasn't ashamed to be a drawn medium it was it looked like a comic book on the the screen and look i i I love the uh, the pixar films i love their you know their free damage your style and everything like that but it was nice to have something that was just like you know sort of really sort of nice and, and simple and old school as, as as opposed to watching something that was once again breaking the the boundaries of um of animation you know this this was you know to me a, a cartoon and, and i love that i've also got to say it was nice as well to have a film that was fun and exciting and had sort of kind of like a a morality at its heart, but it wasn't a really big, heavy-handed social um, mm. justice metaphor. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There are so many films nowadays, animated films, that you feel are sort of preaching something. That's all very nice and worthy, but it was nice to have something that wasn't a um, a metaphor for some bigger issue about you know children growing up or something like that this was a you know an old school fun uh, adventure there was lots of really good references that adults would enjoy as as well it had sort of like the 
obviously the, the Ocean Eleven uh, influence to it, but it also had this like Reservoir Dogs style to it with lots of sort of really good snappy dialogue. You know, it's, it's from start with a, a snake and the wolf sat in a, a diner that could have been something from Pulp Fiction. The wolf was wearing this awesome white suit and everything. There was lots of banter, you know, and, and edgy moments. And, and I've just found this, this whole thing a real treat. I've got to say as well, kudos to the, the cast that they managed to get to, to you know, because they, they were all awesome. I mean, my, my favourite character was Aquafina as the uh, as the hacker spider. I absolutely love yeah. that character. It was one of these things as well, but I got so engrossed in it <laughs> and I, I knew... I knew some of the voices, but it wasn't until afterwards that I looked them up that I realised who they were because we were sort of in on their characters. It was it was it was great. I mean, the, the one gripe I will have, and, and this is because it's a kids' film. There's got to be a sort of a little bit of a simplicity to it. All the potential um, plot twists I caught, I saw coming a mile off. Mm. I mean, from the, for example, the, uh, the the moment that the guinea pig character came on, I knew that that was going to be the head villain. Oh, uh, spoilers, by the way. Apparently not. Yeah, and Sazie beats us Fox character. I knew again within a couple of minutes that she was going to turn out to be this mysterious number one rival that they've all been talking about. You know, they were re- they were really telegraphed in these things. But like I say, you have to give it a bit of slack because you know this is a you know a, a, a kids' film. I think as adults, we've taken away so much animation from, from kids anyway, but it's okay to have something that is there for the kids to enjoy and wear along for the ride and getting what we, what we can for it. But my one disappointment, and this, this film was you know, funny for, for so much of it, is that it was a very grounded movie for, for most of it it was very sort of you know, you know down to earth with a little bit of like cartoon humor. But the finale had this like massive unstoppable wave of guinea pig zombies and it seemed to be that they suddenly wanted to have a big massively animated finale which seems to be a trope with a lot of these films that the uh that, that you get that you so have to have this sort of you know big monolithic side to like fret at the end so they can really get all the uh all the spectacular animation out of the system i enjoyed it a um a, a real lot excellent although for the record, nobody likes spiders, Darren. Good review, good one. Phil? Yeah, I really, really wanted to love this film. I thought the trailer looked great. I thought the animation was amazing. Um, Darren's just mentioned that. I think the animation was really, really good. But after a really great start, for me, it was just another solid, enjoyable, but uninspired animated film that will entertain the kids, but as far as the adults are concerned, it's kind of background fodder. And that's, you know, that's not a bad thing. You know, this is for kids and my kids loved it. We went as a family. My kids love it. We've got guinea pigs. They adored the guinea pig stuff. The The zombie outbreak of guinea pigs is an absolute winner for kids who like guinea pigs. I can guarantee you that. It was you know, great. And, and we had a great conversation after the film that uh, my son raised, which was about the fact that in this world, there are humans, there are animals that are humans, like, you know, that behave like humans, like our lead characters, and then there are normal animals. And this seemed weird, even to my kids. And we started debating, and, you know, there was this whole discussion about 
are there specific animals in this world that are like humans and specific animals that are just like animals? Or is there a cross-section of every type of animal that is both human and animal-like? And I'm interested in everyone's thoughts on that. And we can talk about that after, if you like. But I was saying, because there is that Richard Iowadi's character is a, a ham- is a guinea pig, but he's a human guinea pig. And then there's lots of just animal guinea pigs. It was incredible. I, it was almost more enjoyable <laughs> than the film. Which I, I don't is... know. I, I won't be able to get to sleep tonight, Phil. It'll just be going round and round <laughs> in my head. Yeah. I mean, so I liked the film. I thought it was fine. I thought it was bookended by two really enjoyable car chases. Can I just interrupt there before, before I, I lose this thing? You, you know what that conversation reminds me of? What you've, you've, all that statement. It reminds me of in, um, in Shang-Chi. Where the uh, the character there, the uh, mm. uh, the Derek, uh, I think it's is it Derek is there. Basically, the, the guy who used to be an actor, and he's talking about yes, planet yes. of the apes, <laughs> and he's talking about oh, the, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, these apes. Well, but but weren't actually really riding horses; they were just acting. That, that's what that felt like. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah, yeah that's what we end up talking yeah. about in the car on the way home. Yeah. <laughs> I thought For God's everything. Don't show them Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Um, no, we've seen we've seen Tom and Jerry, the the new one with Chloe Grace Moretz. My kids I meant like the that old well. cartoons. Oh, mind no, you, yeah. you'd have to explain the maid then, wouldn't you? That would. Uh, that's a bit of a flashback. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, so I really liked the the bookend of the two chases. I like those. I like the soundtrack. Thought everything in the middle was kind of predictable, but. Sam Rockwell, for me, just lifted it. So his character, and Darren's mentioned this, for me, he was part George Clooney, Ocean's Eleven. So he's got an answer for everything and this heist and all that sort of stuff and has his gang and all that sort of thing. But he was also part George Clooney and Out of Sight because he's got that kind of flirtatious relationship with Zazie Beetz character, who's kind of the the authority in the situation. Um, And I thought she was really good, kind of matched him really well and, Darren mentioned, you know, the voice cast is really, really good. All the other actors that played the different animals and stuff. And I just felt that if more of the film was this whole kind of Sam Rockwell is George Clooney from these films and it was kind of more focused on that, I would have liked it even more, you know, rather than just finding it okay. But the reality is, is this film isn't for me. It's for my seven-year-old who loves guinea pigs and thought it was awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Neil, I'm waiting for this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to have to wait a few days more, I'm afraid. So it's, uh, I was going to see it after um, The Northman. I was so exhausted after that film, I just thought, no, I'm going home. I'm, <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> face sitting down for another two hours. So sorry, missed that one. Is. Which I yeah, no, 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 no! Don't knock it, Phil. That's his best review of the night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair <Graham>. enough. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Yeah, I love this. Uh, what a great start! Um, the first half hour was excellent. The musical number in the middle was great fun. Finishing with that line that made me laugh out loud. La la, I can't hear you. Guilty, guilty, guilty. <laughs> I, thought, mm. I thought the voice acting was phenomenal an inventive and engaging movie for adults with enough slapstick silliness to keep the children entertained. 
the array of acting talent all get their moments to shine. And I really did like that, that every single person got their own little cameo bit. But Sam Rockwell, as everybody said, carried the movie. Every criminal heist and gangland movie gets a reference from the minis in the sewer to the Pink Panther. It's all in there. Just a great deal of fun for all the family. Starts with a blast, goes a little soft in the middle, but really picks up the pace for the last act. Nice little moral message to contrast with the opening state sentiment to go bad or go home. I thought it was an excellent little movie. Cannot praise this enough, and I'm really looking forward to watching it with my grandkids. Excellent. Well, I'm going to shock you all by saying a lot of my review is going to agree with Phil, although I didn't spend that much time world building. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It does. It starts well. It's a lovely riff on the opening of Pulp Fiction and the ever so cool Sam Rockwell, as you've all said. I mean, providing the voice of Mr. Wolf. He's got a voice that projects confidence and sleaze in equal measure and is perfect for playing this sort of seedy bad guy criminal. The first 15 minutes of fast pace, colourful animation, and it'll appeal to everybody in the family, like one of the great Pixar films. Then clearly the filmmakers realise they should be toning this down for, you know, the kids. And when I say kids, I mean young kids who grew up on that CBeebies crap. Gone is the promising start, and you're left with a plot far too easy to set in guests, as Darren has said, including who the real bad guy is. you got to look at that age group. It does have a pretty good message to them. Never judge a bad guy by the cover, but by his or her actions. Looking at you here, Mr. Putin. Sadly, the animation matched that intent. I didn't think it was as good as you guys did. I thought it was, as it went on, it was quite simple and flat. So it didn't excite me, and my interest wandered. And as Phil has previously said, I'm easily bored. (laughs) So that's not to say the bad guys is a disaster. It entertains, and if it was on a Saturday morning TV... I'd watch it. Now I'd watch it for the world building and how all these people interact. But whenever you got Sam Rockwell, Aquafina, and I close my eyes at the spider bit, or Richard Aoade providing vocal entertainment, I thought they were great. It's going to quickly fall onto streaming and be forgotten. So, uh, yeah, there we go. Bad Guys currently shown in cinemas and on video on demand. And that's it for this month's reviews. Okay, everyone, what has everyone selected as their favourite film that we've reviewed this month? Neil? Uh, Operation Mincemeat. Graham? Um, The Northman for the bits I could see. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Jeff? Uh, Despite my reservations, it still has to be Operation Mincemeat. Uh, I'm going to go with the uh, the bad guys. And Phil, what are you going to go for? I'm obviously going for The Northman, and I liked it so much, I think it counts as double. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a tie this month between Operation Mincemeat, which should get the edge because Welsh guy saved the world, and (laughs) The Northman. Okay. Welsh guy saves the world after he's dead. Let's not forget that. That's how tough we are. (laughs) Yes. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap, and another At The Flicks is in the can. And a heads up for everyone, Graham and I have been invited to a film premiere. More details about that when we can reveal them. The only sad note is the male will not be in attendance. So no drunken loudmouth misogynist there to spoil the... Oh, wait, hang on. Jeff's there. Yeah, he is, yeah. Yeah, and then he slapped someone for being woke. (laughs) (laughs) And for everyone else... 
Thank you for listening and goodbye. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now.